0: We began in the book of Acts last Sunday morning with a look at the prophecy, the prediction made by the Lord Jesus Himself just minutes before He ascended to heaven. He predicted what has happened and is happening. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. A missionary church is not merely one that supports missionaries and prays for missionaries, And not merely a church that only sends missionaries, but a true missionary church is a missionary church at home, in their own Jerusalem. And so today we're going to take a look at how this prophecy, this prediction of Jesus, began to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And how the Jerusalem church is a model for churches even today. So let's bow in prayer together. And Father, we thank You for Your inspired Word. And we pray now that Your Holy Spirit who inspired this Word may illuminate it that You might speak to us. May You speak to us. Some need to hear the word of salvation and be saved today. Some need to hear a word of exhortation and be obedient to your call. We pray that you would work now through your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now after Jesus died in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came as Jesus said, he would. And he baptized and filled the 120 disciples gathered in the upper room. They miraculously, instantaneously had the ability to speak foreign languages. How many of you ever studied a foreign language? Yeah, I took two years of French, but it never took me, you know? (laughs) And uh, I've studied Greek and Hebrew, but don't ask me to tell you anything in any any of those languages. But these people received a miraculous gift of tongues, of languages, and they were able to praise God in the languages of all these Jewish people who had come from all over the Roman Empire back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They heard these Galileans speaking all these foreign languages, miraculously. This miracle caused people to gather. Then Peter preached the gospel in Greek or Aramaic, the common language that they all shared, and as a result of hearing the gospel preached, and very personal to them, you killed the Messiah, he told them. And you need to repent and believe in the Messiah that you killed. What a a convicting message. And they believed then in Jesus Christ. They were saved. They were baptized. They were added to the church. 3,000 of them on that first wonderful Gospel day of Pentecost this miraculous event had a tremendous effect on the city of Jerusalem. And the church of Jesus Christ, founded there in Jerusalem, had a marvelous influence on its community. And I believe that an obedient, gospel, Holy Spirit-filled church will have a tremendous community impact. I see three impacts on the Jerusalem community recorded in the verses that we're looking at today. Number one, there was fear. Number two, there was favor. Number three, there was faith. So if you want to follow the outline today, fear, favor, faith. The first impact that this church had on its Jerusalem was fear. In the Revised Standard Version that I am reading from, it speaks here of everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. The Greek text underlying this English text uses the word phobos. How many of you have ever heard of somebody that had a phobia? Yeah, there's all kinds of phobias, and some of them have really long names, you know. Fears of various things. Some people have a fear of the dentist or a fear of heights or uh, whatever it may be that a person may have a fear of. This is not merely talking about a fear of germs or something like that. This is talking about the fear of God. The fear of God. This same word phobia is used. Phobos is used in Mark 4.41 when Jesus stilled the stormy sea of Galilee. It says the disciples feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? They had the fear of God. The Apostle Peter wrote of this in 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on on earth. Do you know there's a passage of Scripture that I pray every Sunday for this church? Would you like to see what I've been praying for you? Look with me at 1 Corinthians 14.24. I pray this every Sunday for this church. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 tells us what should happen to an unbeliever when an unbeliever comes into the worship service of a church like this. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So, when you walk out of church and you say, Oh, you really stepped on my toes today, Pastor, I am so disappointed. Because <laughs> that's not what I was praying for. I do not seek to offend. I do not want to dent your fingers, dent your fenders. I don't want to just uh, cause some little twinge of conscience. No, I am using the sword of the Spirit to use the sword of the Spirit to bring about spiritual surgery in the hearts of people. To do the kind of work that Paul describes that there might be conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's why the Holy Spirit came. That people would be called to account for themselves, for all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of ourselves. How many have done your taxes so far? Anybody? Oh, about four or five. That's good. That's good. You've got another month. You know, it's okay. It's amazing how going doing your taxes causes you to kind of give an account of yourself to the government, and as you look over all those receipts, to think, boy. I spent a lot of money last year, didn't I? Look what I spent it on. An account. We give an account. But someday it won't be the IRS we'll be giving an account to. We'll be giving an account to God. Notice the secrets of his heart are disclosed. you know God can do that? God wants to deal with your secrets. You all look so good today. You look great. I mean... You got up. You had your clock set last night. You're dressed up. You're fixed up. You look great. You look great. Everybody looks fine here. But I'll tell you what. God not only deals with our exterior life that we show to others. He deals with the secret things in our hearts. The things that nobody knows but us. The secrets of the heart are disclosed. God does that. And so that he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. And I say, God, would you do that? It's Sunday again. Your people are going to gather. Among them, there will likely be those who are unbelievers. May they be convicted. May they be convinced. May the secrets of their hearts be revealed. May they truly worship God. And may they recognize that God is in our midst. Jesus said, when you gather in My name, there am I in the midst of them. Aren't you glad it's not just us here today? God is in our midst. Jesus is here. The Holy Spirit is here. We are built up together as a temple of God. And when we gather together, we are the temple of God. God dwells in us. God is here. God is at work. God is convicting, convincing, revealing secrets, and causing people to bow before Him in worship. Yes, that is the fear of God. It is serious stuff. How important is the fear of God? Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to the problems and challenges of life. It's usable knowledge. But it begins with the fear of God. When Paul lays out the sinfulness of mankind in Romans chapter 3, he concludes it by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We live in a world now that has lost the fear of God. There was a day in the founding of our nation, not all of the founders of America were Bible-believing Christians, but there was apparently a greater knowledge of the fact that we were under God. Even the black robes of our judges were an implication that those judges were under the authority of God, appointed by God, who established human government. Yes. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. How sad it is that we are now on every level of public government education seeking to educate children and young people aside and apart from the fear of God. Notice in verse 43 of Acts chapter 2 everyone, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Or Phobos, a sense of the fear of God. As everyone, all kinds of people feared God, both saved and unsaved. Saved people are motivated by a healthy fear of God to live a pure and surrendered life, knowing that God sees and evaluates and records every thought, word, and deed of my life. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible tells us that government leaders need the fear of God. 2 Samuel 23:3, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. In the township where we ministered for almost 30 years, Limerick Township in Pennsylvania, they have a motto there on the wall of the township office: Under God, the people rule. Under God under God. That concept must not be lost. The Apostle Paul wrote, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. To the church at Ephesus, he wrote, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Satan is seeking to destroy the divine order of the family and of human government. And God is established truly in His place. When He is in His rightful place in our lives, then we understand the divine order. And we willingly are willing to place ourselves in that place where God has put us. In fact, the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used over 300 times in the Old and New Testaments. What does it say in Job 28.28? Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Proverbs fifteen sixteen Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Isaiah 11.2 says about the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears. This is the basis for respect. Respect for parents. Respect for policemen. And respect even for pastors is to be based upon a proper respect for God. How sad it is that we are living in a day of great disrespect of God-given authority. In the story of Jonah, the sailors on that ship learned the fear of God. They learned the fear of God when they saw... God bring a storm and then bring the ceasing of that storm as soon as Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by the great fish. It says they feared exceedingly and they offered sacrifices to God. God noticed that Abraham feared Him. In Genesis 22-12, God said, now that I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from Me your Son. Well, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh did not fear God, and that's why he continued to defy the Lord. The fear of God is the one fear that will cast out all the other fears in your life. A.W. Tozer said, the fear of God is astonished reverence. I believe that the reverential fear of God mixed with love and fascination and astonishment and admiration and devotion is the most enjoyable state and the most satisfying emotion the human soul can know. How big is your God? How big is your God? The God that you know, the God that you believe in, the God you trust. How big is He? A number of years ago, a prominent church leader said, the power of nuclear weapons is so great that even God couldn't deal with it. His God is too small. How big is your God? Is your God able to do anything? If he is the God of the Bible, then he is almighty, all-powerful, all-wise. Do you have a small God or do you have a big God? The God of the Bible is more holy and more judgmental of sin than you can imagine. And He is more merciful and more gracious and kind and loving than you can ever conceive of. So often we have somehow invented an idol God of our own imagination that fits nicely into our way of looking at things, but He's not the God of the Bible. I'll tell you, the the greatest thing you could ever do to get to know the fear of God is to read the whole Bible. Some of you are doing that. And you know what will happen to you? I can predict what will happen to you when you read the whole Bible. You'll go, Whoa. God did that? I don't know if I like what he did. I don't know if I agree with what he did. I don't know if I like what he said about that. I don't know. And you're going to have a crisis in your life. And then you're going to decide whether he is God or whether you are. And when you discover that the God who has revealed himself in this book is the God who made the world and to whom you will answer someday, you are beginning to have the fear of God you will begin to be in awe of him because he is not a tame lion. As you might know from reading C.S. Lewis's works, he is not who you think he is or even who you want him to be. He is who he is. And when you understand who he is, you will bow before him and worship him. And you will realize that He is the awesome, holy, and true God. And that His mercy and grace is a miracle that only could come through the death of His Son Jesus in our place, shedding His blood for us on the cross. Paul told the Christians in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now why did these people, described here in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, why did they have this awe, this fear of God? It says in verse 43, many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. I love seeing the Jesus film that Crewe put out. I'm always struck by the miracle working power of Jesus in healing the sick and raising the dead. And it just makes me love Jesus all the more when I see His mighty works of healing power. Jesus had these this display of miracle working power to prove that He was the Messiah and that He had come to fulfill the law and the predictions of the prophets. And then He gave this miraculous ability to the disciples and they did miracles to authenticate this new message that was coming. That Jesus was the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and rose again from the dead. But now we have something that the believers in Acts chapter 2 didn't have. Do you know what we have? We have the completed Scriptures. We have a more sure Word. We have a more sure Word than if somebody got up in the service today and prophesied or spoke in languages they had not personally learned or did a miracle of healing, we have a more sure word and we analyze everything by the word of God. We search the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. And no matter who the preacher is from this pulpit or on the radio or on TV or the internet or anywhere else, we check it all out by the word of God. Is it what the Bible says? This is the authentication of the message. But prior to the the writing and the completing of the New Testament, there were the apostolic miracles used by God to authenticate God's truth. We have the completed Word of God. We stand at the end of the revelation of Scripture which is now complete and must not be added to or taken from. Do you have the fear of God? Joe Molador was a guy that I had the privilege of leading to Christ out of some counseling situation. And I'll never forget Joe. He was kind of a rough guy. He's from New Jersey, which explains a lot. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I remember him telling me after one service, he came up to me and he said, Pastor, he said, if anybody gives you any trouble in this church, you just tell me. <laughs> And I'll put the fear of God in him. <laughs> he wanted to be my bodyguard, you know. I, I know what he meant. He meant well, you know. He was just trying to tell me he was on my side, he was my guy, he had my back, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what would it take to put the fear of God in you? What would it take? To put the fear of God in you. Where you would have that kind of serious respect for God. That would cause us to hate sin and to love obedience. That would make us so careful about our lives that we would want to live a life that pleases Him in every way. That we would recognize that we fall short and need to yield to Him to live His life through our lives the fear of God the fear of God came upon the community because this church had the miraculous power of God now what is the miraculous display of God's power in our day and age in the church in our Jerusalem it is changed lives that's the miracle that's the miracle It is that God can take people and change them from being self-centered, self-ish, materialistic, pleasure-seeking human beings and turn them into people who love God more than they love themselves, who, who serve God with their lives, and who love God more than they love their stuff and their bank account that's a miracle when God does that and he is changing people today from the inside out that's a miracle whenever God saves a soul and I'm not just talking about a person who raises their hand or prays a prayer and then just goes their way I'm talking about a person who recognizes they're a sinner hears the Gospel, trusts in Jesus Christ, receives Him into their life, and the Holy Spirit begins changing them into Christ-likeness. Whenever God takes a person like us and makes us people like Jesus, that is a modern-day miracle. And God is doing that. And that is the work that shows His power today. The second influence on the community in Jerusalem was favor. Having favor with all the people. Why did the people of Jerusalem favor these Christians? Why did they they look at them favorably? Was it because they had a great TV show? Was it because they had a great radio preacher? Was it because they had a beautiful church building? Was it because they had a fleet of buses? No! No! They didn't have any of that stuff. What was it? Jesus predicted it in John 13.35. He says, By this shall all know that you are My disciples by the love that you have for one another. We see the sacrificial sharing of these people. They had come to Jerusalem from all over the the Roman Empire for the Feast of Pentecost. They'd gotten saved, and they didn't want to go home. They wanted to stay and grow in this new life in Christ. And so they hadn't budgeted for a long stay. What do you do when you're out of town? You say, well, you just run up your credit card. They didn't have credit cards, you know? What are you going to do? And so they shared. And the people were in Jerusalem that had property they sold their property so that they could give to the needs of these thousands of people who were coming and forming this church in Jerusalem and they shared everything in common and they they met in each other's houses and they they just shared their homes they shared their food they shared their money they shared everything and and it was a beautiful thing now Uh, Some people say this was the first communism or socialism. Now there's a difference between what happened in Acts 2 and socialism or communism. Uh, Why? Because socialism and communism involve government theft and transfer of wealth by coercion. There's no coercion in this. There's no government in this. It is the voluntary sharing of possessions with those who have a need that's christian love that's charity and i'll tell you the christians in america are some of the most charitable people in the world they voluntarily give of their money in order to help people around the world the whole movement in history of the development of hospitals around the world is a christian effort It was founded and begun by Christians who cared. And one of the things that spread Christianity in the whole Roman Empire in the earliest days was this kind of loving, sharing of material things. Caring for the sick. Caring for the poor out of love. Caring for one another in the family of God and then caring for people in the community who needed help. That kind of love that showed that we value people more highly than our stuff made a difference. I love that cartoon that shows a garage door being lifted up on a garage full of stuff. There's very few garages with cars in them, you know. It's all full of stuff. And it's all piled up. And this old man has his son there and he says, son, someday all this will be yours. (laughs) (laughs) Where did we get all this stuff? I have moved so many times. We're actually traveling a lot lighter now. But it's amazing how much stuff you collect. Ever noticed? Let's build some more storage bins, huh? Let's, let's uh, pay money to store our stuff. What in the world do we have with all this stuff? And, and they said, you know, we're not going to live that long. People have needs. Let's Share our stuff. There is no greater proof that the love of God has transformed your life than your willingness to share your stuff. Look with me at 1 John 3.16. A lot of people know John 3.16, but do you know 1 John 3.16? This is based on John 3.16, but this is the living out of John 3.16 in our lives. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. You know, if you want to just analyze your values, look at your checkbook. Look at your bank account. Look at what you spent money on last year. That's where our values are. Jesus, as recorded in Acts 20.35, said it is more blessed to, to give than to receive. Now, the Bible tells us that we ought to provide for our loved ones. We ought to provide for our family. We ought to be good stewards of everything God has given us. But if we are stingy, selfish people, we are not showing the true love of God. The world will notice when we care for each other in ways that cost us something. Galatians 6.10 says, "...So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." They opened their family, they opened their homes to one another. We heard this morning about the importance of discipling a few people. As Diane and I were looking back on our lives, (laughs) there's a few people that have lived in our house, (laughs) other than us and our six kids, which was plenty. But we've had some other people live in our house, and those are the people that have had a lasting influence of discipleship. Do you open your home? Who do you invite into your home? Who eats at your table? It is using our home, our food, our table, our money to show the love of Jesus Christ that will show the world that we are changed by Christ, that He has made a difference in our lives. Their community saw how much they cared for each other, enjoyed each other, They wanted to be part of it. They had favor with all the people. This is the dynamic of the Holy Spirit that caused the Christian faith to spread through the entire Roman Empire. Which leads us to the final and third effect of the church on its community. 47b. What does Acts 47b say? And the Lord was adding to their number Day by day, those who were being saved. You see, they didn't just have a Sunday faith. Look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They had a daily faith that resulted in daily people coming to Christ in that city. House churches were seeing daily conversions of Jewish people to have faith in Jesus Christ and become true followers of Jesus. So, adding to the church. Now what was shared earlier in multiplying the church comes through discipleship, life into life. The divine mathematics of the Bible. So daily additions to the church And then discipleship produces the multiplying of disciples. Because God's math and our math is different. You ever think of the math of the Trinity? One plus one plus one equals one. Yeah. You put that on your test in first grade, you're going to get in trouble. Okay? Uh, That's not our way of doing math, but it's God's math. Okay? And as was shared with us today, God's way is not merely to add... Uh, believers in Christ, it is a matter of multiplying believers, and that is by the making of disciples. The sad thing in the world today is that many missionaries are not making disciples. What do they do? Many times missionaries go into a foreign country. They try to learn the language. They try to raise their kids. They try to learn how to shop and and live and all that kind of thing. They'll rent a little building. They'll hold some services and some, some needy people will be gathered. And the missionary is still like doing everything 30 years later. Very sad. Very sad. We had a missionary when I went to Limerick Chapel uh, 30 years ago and he was ready to go to the field with his family and they had all that done. But he had never led a soul to Christ. He had never discipled anybody. We showed him, we taught him how to lead people to Christ, how to disciple them, how to form them into groups there in our Jerusalem. And when he got good at it, we sent him to South Africa and he did it there. I think missionaries have a lot to teach us. The ones who are truly making disciples can show us how to do it. Because in America, you can build a big church by just having a good preacher and a good program and a good music program, and you can swap Christians around from one church to another. And you can build a big church just by swapping Christians around. You can't do that in Turkey, folks. You can't do that in Morocco. You've got to build relationships with people and love them and show them Christ and then introduce them to the Gospel and then lead them to Christ. Disciple them in your life and then form them into house groups. All That's what's happening there. Praise God for that illustration of biblical truth. But they can teach us something. And how we need to open our hearts, open our wallets, Uh, open our dinner table, and invite people into our daily lives, share Christ with them in a real, honest way, and then lead them to faith in Christ, answer their questions, disciple them, and train them to reproduce themselves for God's glory. Jesus said, I will build My church. God is at work in the world today. We want to join Him in what He is doing. Our job is not to build the church. That's His job. Our job is to be the church. To repent of the things that we have not been doing that we ought to be doing. To repent of the things that we have been doing that we shouldn't be doing. To get our hearts right with God and each of us be that healthy believer Who values God and others more than ourselves and our stuff? Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the influence, the impact that this Holy Spirit filled church in Jerusalem had on its community. I pray that we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit, so controlled by the Spirit of God that we would exalt Christ in our lives. And that as a result, the fear of God would fall upon this community. That we would have favor with them as they see the difference you make in our lives. (coughs) Lives of love. Practical way. And then would you add disciples and even multiply disciples for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the Lord sends us out into our Jerusalem, maybe this morning you would like to say to him, as his forgiven, accepted child in Jesus, Lord, take my life, take my hands. Take my voice, take my silver, take my love. We're going to sing the first and last verses of this hymn, number 379. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. Take my love, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. If you'll bow your head, please. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are here in a land of freedom where we can study your word and come to a house of worship to sing praises and honor to you, and to get closer with brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask your blessings upon Dr. Shaheen and your international and the mission that you have given him and his wife and those that work for him and most importantly for you. We ask your blessings upon those in the Middle East and all over the world, dear Lord, that are being persecuted for their faith in you. Help us to Go out and boldly profess you as Savior and Lord and King and our Lord of our lives, Lord. Please protect us as we leave here today and help us to bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.